You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. What we need to see in the juniors that I believe is still missing is a big liquidity event within this little micro sector that we're all in. We know one of these companies, one of these big discoveries that's widely held being taken out at a very significant premium. That's what we need to get money generated and, and re-injected into the sector. And once that happens, then all these insiders who follow the sector will start redeploying that money. It'll rise and that kind of performance will start getting the outside money in, which is what we really need to get the next leg up going. I'm Bill Powers, and this is Mining Stock Education. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. If you would like to engage the show or any topics I cover, feel free to email me at bill at miningstockeducation.com. Well, on today's show, we'll be talking about gold and the junior miners, and I have with me analyst Brian London. He is the editor of the Gold Newsletter. He's also the host of the New Orleans Investment Conference. If you aren't familiar with Brian's work, please go to goldnewsletter.com, and he writes a monthly newsletter on the topic of gold and the junior miners, and he does offer a free sample issue there. You'll see on the header on the homepage, you can get a free sample issue to learn about his approach to analyze analyzing these companies to see if you like it. So I encourage you to go do that. And I will put a link to that in the show notes below. Well, Brian, I've been, I think it's been about six, six or seven months since you were last on the show. And I last got your update. Uh, gold has been, uh, it's been rising, of course, $300 more than it was a year ago. Some of the junior miners don't seem to be keeping up with the, with the pace of the rise of gold, at least according to how I would expect it to occur. What are your thoughts here? Well, uh, Bill, great to be with you again. Um, if, if gold goes up $300 every time you have me on, I think you really need to have me on more often. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. It has not translated into the juniors. It's still pretty much in the producers, you know, that's offering that immediate leverage to uh, the gold price. And even, you know, even there, we're not getting the kind of outperformance we would really like to see. Uh, a couple of things to, to note there. You know, I, uh, I look at that on a daily basis. I really need to look at a longer-term chart to, to analyze it a little more deeply. But since uh, this year, at least, since the beginning of January, we've seen it go back and forth where on a daily basis, we, I've often seen silver and the mining stocks outperforming gold. And what that tells me is that the demand, at least on that day, has been more of a, uh, due to monetary issues, you know, kind of the longer term, stronger motivations that people are looking at the, the likelihood of central bank stimulus, the likelihood of an acceleration in the uh, devaluation of, of fiat currencies, etc. Sometimes we see the silver and the mining stocks fail to outperform gold. And in that case, what you're you're seeing, at least in, in that instance, in that snapshot, is that the, the move in gold, if gold is rising, was was uh, driven by safe haven demand. Uh, that's what, and, and that typically doesn't last. We had a couple of episodes of really significant safe haven demand already this year. One, the dust up with Iran. And the second, which is kind of ongoing as we're talking, is the uh, coronavirus, the COVID-19 
virus epidemic, and and we don't really know yet what the uh, end results of that are. So it's gone back and forth. Um, there has been some good periods or, or at least short periods of outperformance by the big gold mining stocks, the producers, uh, and that's encouraging. That indicates that there's an underlying powerful undercurrent of demand for gold for good long-term reasons. Um, but in the juniors, we have not yet seen any kind of a broad-based response. You know, at the um, Vancouver conferences in January, uh, I, I saw a number of new financings being offered by juniors. And with one exception that I can think of, they were all oversubscribed very quickly. But that was a bit of a select group. It's not that any uh, or the average junior coming to market can get a financed oversubscribed these days. So what we need to see in the juniors that I believe is still missing is a big liquidity event within this little micro sector that we're all in. Uh, we know one of these companies, one of these big discoveries that's widely held being taken, taken out at a very significant premium. That's what we need to get money generated and, and re-injected into the sector. And once that happens, then all these insiders who follow the sector will start redeploying that money. It'll rise, and that kind of performance will start getting the outside money in, which is what we really need to get the next leg up going. So I believe John Kaiser has talked about that, where it's a more of a discovery-focused and, and driven uh, bull market. So yeah. y you see more of a Voices Bay, that type of thing that would needed to draw in the generalists rather than the generalists are coming in because gold is rising? Yeah, kind of. I think what we need, a big takeout would... would get money redeployed within the sector by the people who are already in the sector, us insiders, as it were. And I think that kind of performance will start raising all boats. That kind of redeployment of liquidity will start raising the sector in general. And I think that's going to bring some of the outside money in. So, you know, it, it may happen regardless, but we do need to have some of those liquidity events to, to get that outside money really getting um, getting jazzed about getting involved in the junior mining sector. What are your thoughts on the passive investing trend that we're seeing in the sector and how it's affecting the junior miners and their, their ability to access capital, where a lot of these investors are just going with the GDX or the GDXJ, uh, things like this, these trends? Yeah, I think that's going to be a real hindrance going forward, um, at least for the majors, because it all gets kind of blurred. You know, there's uh, it, it, it can work to some degree. I tell people who are just getting in, who are generalists, just getting involved in the sector, I tell them that they can either do their homework, uh, spend at least a few thousand dollars a year subscribing to a few really good newsletters and going to a few conferences and talking to companies, really educating themselves. And if they're not willing to spend that kind of time, money, and skull sweat to really learn about the sector then just buy the indices you know just buy gdxj and be done with it um and i, I think that's going to be very common the, the the passive investing uh method won't work in the junior mining sector that uh we focus on because it is so inefficient uh there's so many inefficiencies and that's not a bad thing that's a good thing because people who can find where there are misallocations of capital, where there are real values, can outperform. 
and most importantly, reduce their, lo- their chances of loss. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Osino Resources is a Ross Beattie-backed gold exploration company in mining-friendly Namibia. Osino's district-scale land package is situated near two producing gold mines, one of which Osino's management team previously developed and sold to B2 Gold. Osino's founders and management are experienced mining professionals who have already successfully developed and sold two companies in the past seven years. Osino has a tight share structure, and with its current treasury, it can self-fund the advancement of its gold discovery into at least 20 This is an exploration company with drills turning that you'll definitely want to pay attention to. Osino trades in New York under the ticker O-S-I-I-F and in Toronto under the ticker O-S-I. To learn more, go to OsinoResources.com. That's OsinoResources.com. Brian, what's your thoughts when it comes to a lot of these small explorers that are self-funding their own exploration? They may not have a large reserve. Perhaps they're processing old heaps, or maybe they have a small underground mine. But a lot of the prospective value proposition that they convey to the market deals with the exploration upside on a non-dilutive basis. Uh, Do you like these companies? What are some of the pros and cons here? Well, the pros are just what you mentioned. They don't dilute. The con is that typically in uh, situations like that, the management teams are seeking to uh, to keep employed, basically, and keep their paychecks paid. Uh, and they don't have the kind of big vision that you see in more of the you know grassroots go forward exploration place. So you have to be careful in those kinds of situations, those kinds of companies, because it may work to produce or to prevent dilution and it may pay the bills, but unless it's really spinning off a lot of cash flow that allows management to have a big vision and go after targets of world-class merit, then it's, it's not the kind of thing that where you're going to get the, the type of returns you're really looking for in the junior exploration sector. I absolutely agree. When I've kind of looked at those companies, it all comes down for me to their entrepreneurial skills and ambition. Are they going to take this cash flow that they have and, and use it to grow? And if they do find those bigger exploration targets, are they then going to take the cash flow from that and grow it further? Because I recall one of the things from the VRIC when Ross Beattie was doing the opening uh, chat there, the fireside chat. He said his one advice to the junior mining um, CEOs would be grow big and grow big quickly. Any commentary here you could share? Well, yes. Listen to Ross. (laughs) (laughs) You'll never never go wrong listening to Ross. Um, Smart guy, and he's absolutely correct. And, uh, you know, my kind of mentor idol in the business, Bob Bishop, used to put it uh, that way or – Similarly, uh, back when he was writing his letter, that you want to focus on companies that are that are targeting really big deposits that can make a difference. And when you find a company, and this is where I kind of don't really take the advice that I should, because I'm I'm spreading so many different companies all over the place. But Bob always maintained that when you find a really good situation in a company that has a really big target. Um, and everything meshes well and everything adds up, then take a meaningful position in that company. Really go for it. And, uh, and you know, of course, um, he did that a, a few times in his career and was able to successfully retire 
Um, but that that's one of the keys, you know, go big or go home. A smaller producer that I've owned in the past, which has a very high beta to silver, is Impact Silver. And you interviewed the CEO uh, at a recent Metals Investor Forum. Mm-hmm. With a company like this that you... You believe that there's silver there, but they don't fully disclose their resources and reserves so that you could actually do some quantitative analysis. Are you comfortable with that, just knowing that they're going to follow the veins where they go, even though you don't have the data of what their reserves are? Well, yeah. In, in that case, for impact, we, we have a little bit of history extending, I believe, something like 500 years uh, where they were continually finding new resources. So that's somewhat comforting. Uh you know, it would be long odds that they're going to suddenly run out next next year. But they do have some identified resources. And, of course, that's the traditional method of silver mining in, in Mexico that you pretty much uh, drill off what you found last week, you know, or produce what you drilled off last week. Um, and there's such uh, generally such consistency and continuity in, in the veins. But what I really liked about impact was that it offered leverage on top of leverage on top of leverage. And that if you look at the the thesis, the investment thesis for gold, and you're confident that the gold price is going to go up for years to come, which I which I do. I do believe that. Then if you if you like gold, then you really have to love silver because it's is you know, as the old saying goes, it's an unexpiring option on gold in the right kind of a bull market like we're in it will outperform gold. So you can get leverage on, on gold by investing in silver. Now you can get leverage on silver yet again by investing in silver stocks. Uh, the producers, of course, um, will benefit more immediately, more quickly from a rise in silver prices. So there you've got leverage on the silver price, which in turn has leverage on gold. Well, even in those silver producers, you can get additional leverage by finding a marginal producer, a company that is barely making money or even losing money at the current silver price. Because all of a sudden, if if they're making zero profits, their profits are literally going to uh, expand exponentially with the first dollar of profit that they make. So the the, the leverage to earnings is much greater for a, comp- uh, a company, then this works in gold and, as well as silver and any commodity, but a marginal producer offers you much more exposure, much more torque on rising commodity price or whatever they're mining. So by finding a marginal producer, which impact was, it was essentially barely breaking even, in some cases losing money with every ounce of silver it produced, but importantly, it was in production. It, it didn't have to get permits. It didn't have to dig a hole in the ground. It just had to ramp up production and, uh, and and just keep producing as the silver price was rising and its profits would expand tremendously. So that's where we are. And of course, that's multiplied in price since I recommended it. And I think if I recall, it went like 30-fold from the bottom of the Lehman Brothers collapse to 2011. And I, I, I ran it 10-fold in 2016. I didn't sell at the top but I just to everything you just said, I know that it's highly leveraged to silver, that uh, yeah. particular play. 
One of the profiles, uh, early exploration profiles that you uh, did in your newsletter before it ran up was Great Bear Resources with their discovery. Can you share with listeners, how have you played that? Did you sell part of your position on the way up? What are your expectations uh, now that it has run up? Yeah, you know, I was fortunate to get into one of the early financings at around 30 cents, and I recommended it to my alert readers at that point. It was trading at 33 cents, and then by the time a few weeks later, I got it into my monthly issue of gold newsletter. It was trading a 50-55 or something like that. So our readers have been in it for a while. They made a ton of money. Um, of course, along the way, I've advised them to take their at least their initial risk capital off the table. I sold about a tenth or less of my position at about $4 to get all my risk capital back and then some. Um, and then I just recently sold another slug just to, to get to the point where I don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, and, and yet I think the stock is headed higher. It's just shifting and transitioning into a new phase. Um, one of the reasons why I took some money off the table now, and not even half of my hold, remaining holdings, but took some more off the table, was because there are so many other plays out there as this bull market is starting that I can see are potential 5, 10, or 20 baggers. And I just don't see that kind of potential right now with Great Bear. That said, I see the very clear potential that this stock could double or quadruple from here. It's got that kind of uh, upside potential. It's got that kind of strike length, that kind of so potential size to the deposit. I mean, they've just confirmed 4.2 kilometers of strike length. Um, I mean, let's think about that. That's enough to, to, to get the vast majority of the Red Lake mine complex encompassed in just that one uh, uh, um, length of, of identified strikes so far. But they really have up to 15 kilometers on that LP fault. They've got the hinge zone, which is, a, which is more of a typical Red Lake type deposit, uh, that they really have not gone back to drill yet. And yet that LP fault has the potential to be at least somewhat duplicated on the North Fault and lined between their ge uh, geophysical surveys have recently identified other prospective areas. So it is not just a target-rich environment, but uh, a, an environment with massive targets yet to be explored. So I think there's just tremendous upside for that. I think it's going to be a generational discovery. Um, and they're going to have that dividend date, I believe, in April or somewhere thereabouts, where that royalty company will be dividended out to shareholders. So you, uniquely with this play, you have the potential to not only have a capital gain off of it, but you can have an income stream that you know your kids and grandkids potentially could benefit from. So it is absolutely uh, unique in the junior mining sector as it stands right now. And I think the management team has just performed brilliantly. I just I absolutely love the whole idea of that uh, new royalty spin out to the shareholders. Yeah, that's unique. How do you normally play an exploration, a stellar exploration drill hole? Uh, a lot of times these exploration stocks, if you buy them at the right time, they can run up threefold even before you get the assays back. 
in those cases, do you often sell? That's the first part of my question. And the second part would be after you get the good results and then the stock doubles again, uh, in this case, you said you went from, I believe, if I recall correctly, from 25 cents to $4 before you sold. Is that your typical mode of operation or how do you play this? Well, in that case, I recommended my readers be a bit more prudent than I was and and take their risk capital back a bit before that. I, I was a bit more of a gambler in that one. But then again, you know, I I understood the play um, very closely. I had uh, one group approach me when the stock was trading. Uh, oh, I guess about two or two fifty or three dollars, and when it was just the hinge zone. And uh, this is a really respected group, and they told me that you know we really our geologists are looking at it, and they don't think it holds together. And you know, you might want to sell your position. And I said, well, that's, you know, thank you for the advice. But uh, what what did management say when you talk to them about the mineralization not necessarily holding together? And they said, well, we, we haven't talked to management. And I said, well, thank, thanks for the advice. But, you know, I've had about 20 conversations with management. And even at that time, I knew that the big play was the LP fault. Um, in that, you know, that huge extent of, of the, the structure that they identified. Um, and, and the key there is, you, you know, you do your homework and you, you learn about these companies. And, and that's getting to your other point, answering your question that you, I don't think you can come up with hard and fast rules for every play. You know, people uh, tell you they, they have the free ride um, uh, strategy where as soon as it doubles, you automatically sell half. Well, first off, you've got to pay taxes. So if you want a truly free ride, the, the stock has to really triple or thereabouts uh, by the time you pay your capital gains taxes. And uh, and secondly, that, yes, it takes some of the emotion out of it by having that hard and fast rule, but every situation is different. In many cases, you can look at it and say, if I sell now, I'm giving up uh, another double or another triple even because I can see this much ahead. So I prefer more to, to take the approach of um, have a goal for each investment, have certain questions that need to be answered. And Rick is a big, Rick Rule is a big proponent of this, uh, that you, you set out your parameters for each investment. And when that stock answers all your questions and reaches that point you hoped it re would reach, you don't reflexively sell it at that point. You reanalyze it and see if it you have if the situation has changed, if there are new questions to be answered, um, and and then judge it in that context. What has been proven to date? What what new potential has been unlocked? Uh, and do you want to hold it to reach that potential? That said, you know, there's the other side of the equation. This is uh, a fairly large market. There are lots of opportunities uh, and there is another bus coming, you know, so you don't have to fall in love with every story and preserving your risk capital uh, and, and living to fight another day is very important in this sector. So it's a balancing act. It really is. And every situation is is different. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Arcana Corporation is on the verge of bringing the world's highest grade silver mine into production. The Revenue Virginius Mine in Colorado has proven improbable silver reserves grading nearly 37 
ounces per ton silver, with an all-in sustaining production cost of only US $8 per ounce of silver. The mine is fully permitted, with infrastructure already in place, and the company has announced they plan to commence production in 2020. Achieving successful production usually results in a significant upward share price re-rating on the Lasan curve. Arcana trades under the ticker AUN in Toronto and AUNFF in New York. To learn more, go to arcana.com. That's A-U-R-C-A-N-A.com. Brian, when you're analyzing uh, a newer exploration company that has a project, and let's just say they have drill permits, and they go public, but you weren't part of the pre-IPO rounds, what are some things you wouldn't want to see going on in the issuance of shares if you're going to buy in post-IPO? Well, if you look through the history of this sector, you can see a lot of people that have made a lot of money uh, mining the investors and uh, or the, mining the market, as it were, and not uh, deposits. And, and what they typically do is give themselves millions of shares at a penny or two. Uh, and you obviously you don't want that. And in you know in some cases the the later uh, investors do very well by those in, in those because the management team or their the group may be very uh, capable financially and 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 have a lot of gravitas and bring the right people to the table and have a really good deposit. But the odds are stacked against you uh, in situations like that. And again, there's another, always another bus coming. There's a lot of opportunities out there. So that's one of the filters that I use. If I, because typically what happens when, when people load themselves up, and, and this is not to say it's not fair that the founders of a company don't get some cheap stock because they're writing the very early checks at the very early stages, and they should be rewarded for that. Uh, but when things get really excessive, when you talk about, you know, tens of millions of shares out there uh, at very low prices, just a couple of pennies, you know, that gets really excessive. Um, and, you know, you, you, you're, you know they're going to make money, but you don't have to be a part of that. And, uh, and it is a good filter to try and avoid uh, situations like that. I agree completely because um, I was researching a company and the company uh, – it could very well be successful. So I'm not, you know, taking a dig at anything with the company, but just the share structure, there were a lot of shares at a penny, just like you said, and uh, it IPO'd uh, multiple, 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 multiple times above a penny. And so if I'm buying at so many times above what management got their initial shares yep. at, it's hard to be aligned with management in those cases. It's just, it just is. And what you're going to see, too, is a lot of the money that was raised is going to go into promotion to, to try to create buying volume so that those people can get off of their positions. Um, so that's the other thing you have to watch. You know, uh, Promotion is not necessarily a bad thing in the junior mining sector, but when you combine uh, a lot of money that's not going into the ground or not even going to G&A, but going into promotion and you combine that with founders who have huge positions at a few cents of free trading stock, 
well, you, you know what the game is in that case, and you just don't have to don't have to be on the field with them. As we uh, look ahead to 2020, we're in 2020, almost done with the second month of 2020, but what might you be employing differently in terms of your uh, speculation strategy in the junior sector this year than you did in years previous? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. I, I, you know, you, you want to look for, for situations, I guess, now that the market's really starting to move, or at least the metals are starting to move. And on that note, one of the things that, that I think is key is people worry about what the sentiment is in the junior mining sector. And I tell them just to worry about the metals because the metals going to drive everything. And if gold gets in a sustained bull market for the right reasons, again, like it is, uh, then the sentiment's going to follow in uh, in the producers and then on down the, the uh, food chain to the juniors. So. So it's going to happen for the juniors it, in, on a very large and broad scale. It's going to happen. So when you know that that's going to happen and you can look at some of the companies out there that have yet to move or, you know, or undervalued, especially in regard to their peer group, um, you need to, to, uh, to take advantage of those and try and pick those up. And, and those kinds of companies are often the ones that have big resources you know, large resources in the ground, identified uh, resources, and in some cases, econo- some cases, economics on them. Um, they they will respond, um, and you know, and and those are the kinds of companies I think that somebody can take a position in now, and know that if gold goes up another fifteen percent in price, those companies are likely to double or more. And they offer that kind of immediate leverage to the gold price. You've been listening to Brian London of goldnewsletter.com. Like I said in the introduction, go over there. You can enter your email into Brian's free email list, and you'll also get a free sample issue of the gold newsletter. Brian, thanks for coming on Mining Stock Education and sharing your insights. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Bill. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks concomitant with that if you don't do the work or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too i just started to study up on mining stocks and i just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.